This episode is sponsored by Furniture Box. Check them out in the description below. Guys, welcome to The Ground Floor, the podcast where we ask successful people exactly how they did it. Our guest today is Tim Cresswick, the founder of Vorboss, which is a technically-led internet service provider with one of the UK's biggest networks. And we're very happy that he's joined us here today. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. It's nice to have you. Great uh, to have you. So for anyone that doesn't know Vorboss, can you give a little summary of what it is, how it got started? Uh, so probably two very different different answers to that. Um, That's fine. What, what we are today is... Um, uh, predominantly a London-centric, business-only ISP, but we're vertically integrated, so we're a utility. We own the cables in the ground, which is unusual in in actually in most of of kind of the provision of fiber and internet is a little unusual that you buy from that a customer would buy directly from the asset owner. Okay. Um, but particularly unusual in business where where you have sort of concepts of wholesale and channel and so on. Um, so uh, business-only, predominantly London-centric over 500 kilometers of, of cable in the ground in central London, massive amount of build, 300 million or so uh, that we're investing in, yeah. in that. Um, but in terms of where we started, uh, my background is software and engineering, and, and actually I started the business as a software company. Yeah, oh, okay. okay. What were you doing before Vorboss then? I'm interested. Uh, so I'm coming up to, I think, 18 years in the, in the company now, okay. running the business. Wow. So um if you do the maths i i started uh just before my 22nd birthday i think um, wow okay young wow. so yeah so so actually just before this the, it's, i have a slightly weird um work history because i think I, I was i was working from kind of the age of 13 so i probably had close to 10 years of, of actual like, other work experience right. on and off doing a number of things um, what, what kind of stuff were you doing oh everything so i think the the first uh the first time I got paid to do anything, it was probably mowing lawns, and I had quite a good nice. lawn mowing enterprise, uh, <laughs> nice. in my, in my, yeah. which always gets a laugh. Um, uh, there's always the, the growth hacking pun in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> I didn't um, even think of that pun, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. in there somewhere. Yeah, I'll yeah. just gift it to you. Um, <laughs> it's uh, a TGF exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had that, and then uh, weirdly, my lawn mowing business turned into kind of a. Um, uh, like an IT support business, uh, it turned out a lot of the customers had the same sort of problems. So I ended up doing a lot of kind of ad hoc IT support. Um, That's an then, interesting transition. I was about to say, yeah, <laughs> how, is it just through kind of small talk with them that they would mention that their computer is playing up or whatever it is? Well, the connection is is actually sort of the time value of money, right? It was people who are too busy to mow their own lawns. Most of the customers I had were sort of let's say busy professionals and um, mm. that's probably stretching it in a few cases but um but a lot of them were people where you know if they're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever they you know they, they it's probably worth them paying somebody else to mow their lawn um and so by extension uh you know i think it was you know they they were people who are quite prepared to have someone sort of uh, pay you know pay someone to resolve their kind yeah. of domestic it issues and and actually tended to have more complicated things going on at home or were doing some work from home for example mm. um so so yeah i kind of got got into got into that did you have an interest in in it at that point or did you just see an opportunity and saw a gap that you wanted um, to film i had an interest in computers um just to kind of completely fill the the stereotype yeah but yeah um i'd uh I think I, I sort of I developed a bit of an interest in um, kind of PC games like back in the day, like DOS games, um, and uh, getting my getting my dad to pay to upgrade or buy us a new computer was impossible. So yeah. uh, I got really interested in how you know how could you actually tweak this so you could get the latest games to run on really old hardware. Oh wow! Okay. And so that was kind of 
where that all started yeah you were um, always a tinkerer so yeah i was yeah. i was tinkering with it and figuring out how to sort of cheaply upgrade stuff and using lawn mowing money to upgrade this pc so i could okay. play some games and you yeah know, like that was that was kind of how i got into it and then um i don't know I was, i've always been interested in in how you can you know how you can get paid to do stuff yeah that's that's what we're interested in too that is, yeah. that's why we started <laughs> this podcast because you love finding out how people did that um okay so did you go to uni I did, yeah, okay. um, but I didn't graduate, so um, you know that's another tick in the. I was about to say okay. that is literally yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. So um, yeah, I think academically, I'm I'm like one of those awful people that like sort of it was always like C for effort, A for result kind of okay. thing. Um, I think if something doesn't doesn't really interest me, or I don't understand the purpose of it, um, you know, or I don't see an obvious application for what I'm learning, then then I'm I'm not a great student. But um, but it's no, interesting how a lot of founders have a very very similar mindset when yeah. it comes to education. From what we from what we've seen, the conversations yeah, we've had, I I think I think there's a sense of impatience, right? Like I remember, it would have been probably like 1994. I remember it was like one of those things that stuck with me was was uh, so I was probably ten years old, something like that. Not even probably, and um, and there was a kid at school, just like an offhand remark he made, which was like, "You realise that we'll probably do." He said something like, "You realise we'll do another twelve years in of of education, uh, of school." The daunting reality. Yeah, and <laughs> and, and it just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly, yeah, you know, and it was a bit like someone told me that my prison sentence was going to be another twelve years. Yeah. It was like I was just dying to get out in the world and do stuff. This was like at age eight or ten right and and it hadn't occurred to me it sounds so silly now but like as a eight or ten year old my horizon was like finishing that school i was at an american international school in switzerland and i had uh yeah i would have had two years left at that school because it stopped at that that level and then i would have had to go on to a, to a separate high school um and so i hadn't really and then i knew because my brother was my brother had just kind of just moved schools um because he was a year two years ahead of me um so i knew he had kind of two or three years in that school and so that was kind of as far as my horizon was set yeah. it was like i knew this was about to be over then there was that it had never occurred to me what might follow that mm. so this whole thing was just like I, and i remember it was the first time i had that really kind of crushing sense of impatience about hating like feeling constrained by being young and wanting to go and do things and and you know mm. knowing that there were these age limits to getting onto stuff what would be your advice then to someone who's at that point in their life at 18 years old and they're trying to decide whether or not to go to university um looking looking back at it it's super tough like i think my story is um completely full of these sort of this sort of conflict and paradox about around um you know the juxtaposition of of on the one hand there are things that i learn at university that i use almost every day yeah and actually as my job gets harder and harder some of those things i sort of lean on maybe now it's moved away from a technical role but certainly um when we were really a software company i was often amazed at the you know really competent developers i was hiring didn't necessarily understand the theoretical underpinnings of certain things right, right. and that that was actually then you know a limitation where where i you know was now tapping into something I'd learned eight years ago and going, mm. well, hang on. So did no one ever explain this to you? Yeah, because I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on these, uh, like, you know, coding boot camps? I've seen a lot of people online that are like, you know, you do a boot camp for six months and you're pretty much not guaranteed, but you have a very good chance of just landing a six-figure salary in a 
you know, yeah, fan company and, or whatever it might be. And I think there's a bit of supply and demand there, right? Like I think I think being blunt, a lot of those roles are currently overvalued, and I think and I think we'll we'll see a sort of a supply adjustment on on that. Um, but nevertheless, I think they're valuable skills. I, I think it's uh, to be a little crude. It's kind of the difference between being like uh, you know a bricklayer or an architect. Uh, I think um, the kind of um, knowledge and intellectual rigor that has to go into designing a building to be safe and to understand how to calculate floor loads and all of the kind of complexity that comes with you know if you're building a public library and all of the things that would go into understanding that and and um, and the amount of training and experience that's required versus being the contractor that turns up on site and knows how to you know bolt a load of beams together or follow the drawings and and kind of and and execute. Um, and sure, they might then, after a couple of years doing that, be able to go and like build their own house, but they're not going to. Does that make sense? That's a really good analogy. It um, is. I really like that. So I think, I think it's that. It's it's. I don't think that. I think coding boot camps are great. I, I've we've got some fantastic people on our team that have done precisely that and are doing really well, and they're learning that way. And you can certainly learn a lot about the principles of architecture by inference right because you're implementing a lot of stuff and you're following you know you're, you're seeing a lot of this and so you're, you're sort of learning it in a weird way the hard way but you're learning it in almost the way that like an ai has to learn mm. by observing what already is and then trying to sort of uh, extract from that what the rules must have been mm. rather than someone teaching you the underlying theory mm. and i think that's that sooner or later becomes a bit of a bottleneck but then i think much like you know, the argument has always been with like an MBA, the, the way to do an MBA is to go and have 5, 10, 15 years work experience and then go and do the MBA. And then someone teaches you the theory and you have the experience to tie with it. And so I kind of, I think a boot coding bootcamp is a really great way to get into it. And then actually it, for people who really want to go to that next level, they probably should consider going and getting some formal education in computer science, yeah. you know, and really understand the mathematical fundamentals behind algorithms and things like that. Mm. But also, they're not necessary for all roles. Mm. And, and to some extent, I had that, right? Like, I was coding for probably eight years, six to eight years before I went to university and then studied computer science. And actually, a lot of it, right. you know, made a lot more sense yeah. because yeah. of that. You so, already had a kind of practical foundation that you could Yeah, and I'd from. done the sort of tinkering and teaching myself and just, you know, going through tutorials and books and yeah, copying yeah. and pasting code and, and sort of figuring things out. Yeah. Um, so, so it's quite eye-opening then when you see the theory. Do you think for people that are interested in things like maybe coding, maybe they don't have the, I suppose, fundamental passion for it that you clearly had, do you think it's still a viable career choice? Because obviously there's the, you know, the kind of chasm of knowledge, right? Where it's like, it's a, it's a big slog. And I've, and I've seen, I've done a little bit. I've tried, I remember yeah. years ago, I tried to learn to code because it was a whole thing of like, I'm going to learn Python or something. And, it, and then you realize just how much there is to learn. Do you think it's one of those things, a skill set where you really need to be genuinely passionate about computers and software and computer science to be able to make it through the long haul? Or do you believe that you can, you know, grind it out, learn it as a skill set and apply it like a trade? I think it depends why you're doing it. I think that's right. So, so like I, I always, I always have a huge amount of time for people in in any job, spending some time doing a Python course or whatever. I actually wouldn't necessarily pick Python because I think it's in some ways a little tricky, but um, because it's it's so useful in helping teach people a little bit how the systems they use every day kind of work. You know, it's like teaching them a little bit how the computer thinks. Mm. To me, that's a really native, obvious yeah. thing. But to most people, it, it isn't. Um, and so I think I think there's a lot of value in 
in people doing it just to have some exposure to, to how does this work it's like it's like having a bit of mechanical sympathy for the car you're driving if you've if someone's shown you how a gearbox works and what mm, actually happens yeah. when you when you pull that lever yeah you're kind of more able to drive the car in a way that won't damage it and i sort of feel like it's a it's a bit like that you know that, that once you understand just some basic fundamentals mm. but that's that's a week of you know that's a week of code course or something it's not okay you know it's not a huge in-depth thing i think the thing that always i always sort of and i have to be a little bit careful not to be too prejudiced on this is is like when interviewing um is the the best coders i've seen um and some of the best technical people i've seen are just so fascinated by it and so like always hungry to learn mm. and always hungry to know more that it's it is also kind of their hobby you know mm. they spend a lot of time on it outside of work not because they're investing in their future that's not how they think about it not because it's what they find fun it's just intellectually stimulating you know they will they will just on a weekend be reading an article about something or looking at something or prototyping something playing mm. with it you know they tend to fit into that they mess around with home automation or they yeah. hack yeah. something in their spare time just because it's like for them it's like playing with lego or doing a video mm. game playing a video game whatever it's just something it's something to do mm. that sort of scratches an itch and i think it's always fascinating to me when you see developers who we you know I, something i always do in job interviews is try and ask people what they do in their spare time what are they passionate about what makes you smile um it's funny as i say that like you both smile right? like <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> yeah. job interviews are so yeah. serious and i always am trying to get to that sort of yeah. bit about like what are you actually enthusiastic about and it's fascinating when you speak to coders who you know then they go oh actually yeah, i don't do any of this in my spare time and for it's me it's, yeah it's a little bit of a red flag because you're like okay so it's literally just a career and that's fine but i think it will it will mean that you're your trajectory is a little capped because you just mm. you just will never do that last little bit of reading that extra yeah. you won't be on the cutting edge you won't see the stuff that's coming down you know before everyone else gets it um and you're competing with those that do yeah well. that's the other thing everything's becoming more competitive yeah. exactly and you just if you don't have that fundamental passion you mm. know it would be a bit like being a filmmaker but not loving it yeah, you know yeah. like you can be you could be a very competent camera operator or whatever yeah, but yeah. like if you're not really passionate about it, you're not you know photography isn't your passion in your spare time there's no overlap then yeah, yeah, yeah. then probably you're not going to be one of the greats how do you think you go about actually finding that how does someone find their passion oh, who knows i think you try a bunch of stuff don't you and that's then, what i've always said i don't a lot I, of people that say that just yeah. tr just trying things tasting things i don't know that i don't even know that i've i can i don't have found have i found mine i don't know you're passionate about your about running a business and your business and obviously what you what you offer you have to be for, for doing it for some Nobody's years. passionate about fiber, and if they tell you they are, they're definitely, they're definitely, <laughs> I love that. They're definitely lying. Um, I, I always say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about how we do what we do, not what we okay. do. If that makes sense, okay. that's a really nice way of looking at it, actually. Yeah. So, what is how you do what you do to you? That's um, a weird sentence. How you do what yeah. you do to you? Uh, it's for me. I mean, that like we I mentioned in passing, like vertical integration is a huge part. Um, I'm fascinated in kind of challenging those assumptions in any industry. So looking at, um, you know, just because it's been done a certain way for two, three, four decades, um, that's not necessarily the best way. I think that's always, you know, it's really careful. You've got to be really careful with that. There's that kind of dangerous startup mentality sometimes of needing to reinvent the wheel on everything you know and and it's it's not super helpful if you're trying to run a business and you're 
meanwhile trying to you know build your own coffee machine it doesn't make sense mm. so there are some areas where you, you have to kind of really understand you have to be quite selective and you also have to understand the the opportunity cost of the time doing that you know you can't you can't reinvent everything but you can you can be selective and then you have time to kind of address those things um and and generally i've always been a fan of kind of owning our supply chain and it's really cool because because people have always kind of pushed back on that um and then we have some fantastic examples now that i think people do genuinely respect you look at spacex you look at tesla you mm. look at uh, amazon these are companies that are massively vertically integrated um you know just uh i mean tesla's a, a more subtle example but you look uh, just in the last couple of weeks we had i think it was ford coming out and saying actually they're having one of the big problems they have is they're now having to start developing a lot more software internally so right. one of the things you take for granted in a tesla and by the way i'm no major fan of, of the cars but um because all of the software is in-house they can do very very simple things like uh have the seat memory linked to an element of the infotainment system or the door or whatever else whereas on a ford or any other manufacturer's car you know the little system that runs the yeah. doors is separate you know and they buy that from bosch and then they buy the system that does the seats from some other little yeah. german company mm -hmm. and you know and none of these systems talk to each other because each one's got its own little bit of bespoke software and if they want to change the way the seat programming works they have to reach out to their supplier and say hey yeah, look we oh. think this would be really really good if you could just change this element so they don't even control their own software stack and they're realizing that to do those things that as a user seems so simple you know when i get in the car and put my seatbelt in why can't all these six things all happen it's like well because they're made by six different companies yeah, yeah. Mm. and so things that tesla probably almost take for granted as a capability they have we're like nope it's all big you know they have their own challenges but you know that comes from being vertically integrated and then you look at spacex and it's like okay well we're there you know they're they they have a, a lift capability that's that goes all the way back to having designed their own rocket engines like nobody does that mm. you mentioned you're not a huge fan of uh the cars tesla oh i just i th i think objectively as a car it's it definitely is you know still not quite up there with with the experience that comes from you know manufacturers have been around decades yeah. no it's 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 sort of more about just okay. build quality and some of the other things you know yeah they've done some super innovative things in terms of the way they actually uh, manufacture them um, they've done some really innovative things in terms of what they can actually do with the car and in the mm. car and all of that um, but you know then they're also suffering from some like totally mundane issues that other manufacturers haven't seen yeah, for, yeah. for two decades yeah you know and so it's kind of on one hand they're up here and, and then they're they're sort of way behind in a few other areas mm. so i think but i think overall what it's done for the industry is, is amazing and as an example of you know it's it's definitely pushing other manufacturers yeah. to look at that vertical integration piece yeah so you come out of uni and it seems like based on the timelines almost immediately out of uni you start vorbos yeah pretty much so i did um i was i was uh so i was studying engineering with computer science at oxford and i did a, just over three years of that which would have been a four-year degree um and that's what i said when i sort of touched on the paradox which is you know i didn't graduate but actually i did learn all the stuff mm. so it was this kind of oh, but again that's that's maybe the 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 way i think about it is the piece of paper wasn't really what i was chasing it was the knowledge mm. so it you know there was this sort of diminishing return on staying yeah. because i felt like i'd captured almost all the value and in fact the majority of, of what i didn't capture would have been a fourth year project mm. which would have been to dream up something 
kind of pointless to do to occupy the time to, to get a good write-up to get a good grade and in fact you didn't want to do anything particularly mm. good because i'd previously had this big debate with them about um ip ownership in the mm. university so oh, okay whatever you did in your master's project the university would have owned the ip so you're like oh, not really? incentivized you're, to make anything okay. anyway it's something that Oxford do quite poorly compared to Cambridge, actually. Okay. Um, oh, is Cambridge not the same with that? They're a lot more pragmatic. And I think oh. Oxford is now heading in that direction. Yeah. But it is, it's a fascinating separate topic yeah, to yeah. rant on one yeah. day. But but yeah, so so there was, there's, a, there's a strong disincentive to do anything particularly useful. Um, was, yeah. was there any... Because um, obviously you mentioned that you'd pretty much learn everything by that point anyway, which I think, you know, you know sounds about right. But was there the fear of even though... I know that I've got most of the knowledge, it, it might affect me when I come to look for jobs. 100%. Um, I think the other, you know, the, the significant part of that equation is that I was miserable, right? Like, right. So, so objectively, I could sort of reconcile it as like, I've, I've kind of learned the majority of what I'm going to learn. Um, you know, 80, 90% is, is there. Um, uh, but, but much more kind of experientially, like I was, I was really miserable. Um, I'd been doing a lot of sport in my first few years at uni and that had kind of kept me sane and I'd had a back injury that meant that I, I kind of had to come, I had to kind of stop doing that. And, and then it was, yeah, it just really took, that was the one thing that I could kind of, kind of manage. Mm. Um, so yeah. And it's difficult. Like those institutions have some truly, truly kind of asinine approach to doing things um you know oxford is an eight week three eight week terms so you spend less than you know the time that you're studying there you spend less than half of your year actually at university so and and compared because neither of us actually went to university so what what is that like comparatively to other universities 10 to 12 i think is normal oh wow so that's like a significant decrease for oxford then yeah why do you think that is or do you know why it's just is? the way they've always done it and they don't question anything you know so they're not prepared to kind of go back and look at these things and so i think and and i think there's a degree of of kind of bravado in all of it you know in the way they sort of they do these things it's like you go you go in you do eight weeks of just absolutely hard burn mm. you know um, that's what my logic would have been is that the intensity is just far greater than it would be yeah i mean I, you know i'd speak to a lot of friends at other universities mm-hmm. where like you would have days where there was nothing scheduled or you'd have days where you had one or two things or like a lecture and like you know whereas you would have almost your entire eight weeks fully programmed wow you know you didn't have any downtime so it's it's intense and the, and the, the danger with that is you fall behind on anything yeah. whether it's sleep mental health course material uh, you know wh- whatever it might be like you, you know any of your work then it just it just spirals really really quickly and what that then leads to is like just you know they, they have one of the worst suicide rates in in the uk in university mm. for like pretty frankly pretty obvious reasons um and then that. there's a kind of effort to just sort of i think conceal a lot of that yeah um so yeah i think i think the approach to, to a lot of those things you know maybe uh, hopefully it's changed a bit and progressed a bit but again there's none of that you know i was i was told and again this varies oxford's particularly bad for this it varies massively by which college you go to but you know the tutor that that i had at the college that i was at you know said day one week one by the way if anyone here does any sport um then then you will not have my support you know you're here to learn not not to do wow. sport you wow wow and and so you know me doing some sport okay. meant he was just actively against me the whole time you know yeah, i kind of yeah, didn't yeah. think he was serious and then you're like oh wow you you really are like here to to fail me now interesting Damn. i would yeah. thought they would have encouraged some sort of extra, extracurricular activities outside of work no, but... it's super backwards yeah in, in okay. that regard interesting um, so i think you know those those things 
when you then have and and the way that works is you basically have two tutors that see you all the way through your degree so you know to put that in perspective there were at, at the college i was at there were only eight of us on my course um you know and then you've got two tutors looking after you so there's a really high ratio of of that but if one of them is is literally out to trip you up mm. for the whole you know after three years it just kind of wears a bit thin um and, and you know i just when you say out to trip you up, like well, how practically what does that look like is it you know you ask them for help and they tell you to go away like wh- how are they tripping you up um i mean it just i mean it some of it's unremarkably petty you know mm. like you if you're you know a minute late or he would schedule things so that they were impossible clashes uh, okay um you. you know that kind of thing you know just just as well as the the more sort of practical like just not really that interested in helping wouldn't give any extra advice tuition it would just be literally like do the on his side do the bare minimum because as far as he's concerned i was doing the bare minimum it sounds um, toxic yeah that no it's massively really... toxic yeah there are people doing the same course at the same university but through a different college at the university where you know they had a totally different experience so i have to be really careful here about the 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 failing of the system there is the ability of a single individual to have so much impact mm. um you know that's not actually a, a total fault of, of the university or the institution but yeah, I'm with you. just on university then how do you view that university now then when you're looking at people for jobs well it's really tricky right like i i something i say quite often at work is is you know we, we work really hard to remind people there's a big difference between um intelligence and education so we have a lot and particularly in our business you know we i think we seek out we kind of we seek out the good deals right so we seek out people who are super intelligent and generally quite often undereducated um because as a business we've taken the approach that we're always wanting to train people so you know there are, there are exceptions to that and there are certain roles um but we certainly bias towards experience intelligence and attitude and education you can fix and you can sponsor and you can pay mm-hmm. for or you can do in-house which we do in a lot of cases so um we're a slightly odd business for for that i suppose but it's tough. Like the cost of university today, I think, is really, really hard to justify. I agree for um, a lot of courses as well. Yeah, and well, and for a lot of courses where you know you, you, there's a lot of softer skills you're learning, and and you do see those gaps. You know, the, if there's one mm. thing that I like swear I lose my shit about every single day, uh, and it hasn't changed in five years, is people's ability to to simply write. And I know I sound like mm. I sound like such a snob for saying that, but um, we've really lost that. Yeah. Um, when you say write, what do you mean by that? Anything, like write an email, write a, you know, write not a letter, but just an internal document. Write a business case. Uh, write a press release. Write whatever it might be. Do you mean sort of practically, or in terms of people not using kind of luscious vocabulary? And no, I'm like I'm a huge fan of you know kind of the Economist style guide approach of like plain English, simple words. Right. You know, they shouldn't. You know, always avoid jargon. Don't use acronyms. Mm. Uh, don't use a big word when a shorter one will do. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not here for the kind of snobbery of the language. Um, but but just the ability to kind of get a point across in written form right you know some of that kind of basic stuff the pyramid principle stuff you know the number of times i see an email where it's like yep cool and the last line of your email should have been the first line you know like you know it's it's, just for anyone listening can you explain what the pyramid principle is so it's just the idea that it's i mean the nice way to think about it is like the difference between uh deductive and inductive reasoning so that the kind of deductive um approach is is you know we start by explaining kind of the the classic one you see is like 
someone at university had to do a project and so they give a presentation on the project and it's entirely deductive they thought the presentation follows the process that they went through um so they go well we started by looking you know we knew that we had this basic understanding of x we started looking at it in this sort of way then we thought or maybe we should expand our expand our search and our reasoning and look at some other things so then we did this then we expanded to that then we did this all the way down slide 20 you've got like oh and then what we found was like these results you're like oh okay cool and then like slide 30 and these were the conclusions we drew and you're like great that's deductive because i can follow the whole journey through it's, it's socratic inductive reasoning is to just take that entire slide deck and more or less flip it on its head and say mm -hmm. you know elevator pitch we did a four-month study and we concluded why you know we concluded that this this and this are actually the following yeah. and you go oh right uh that sounds a bit weird that's counter to my previous understanding mm. um you know and then you can imagine it's like well when we did the study we got these results oh right okay you got results to back up that claim cool well how did you how did you structure that oh well i you know i did the following six things these were my methods oh right okay well what was the basis upon choosing those methods oh well i did this and so it's the pyramid principle is kind of delivering the conclusions first yeah and then being able to answer any question any obvious question that comes at you following that the more mundane example i used to see was the sales email mm. so ah oh, the sales <laughs> and it Good would be sales and it would be um you know hi fred um thank you so much for the time today uh, really great to see you um and then there would be a paragraph of explaining literally just recounting the conversation it's literally like the salesperson sitting there and just like in autopilot like almost like making their own notes in an email and they, oh yeah 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 you know so you explain that your business does this and then these that means you have the following issues and like and then you also told me that your current provider has really let you down in the following like five ways you know and then it goes on and then it, it then it talks a little bit about our company and what we do and then it talks a little bit about um where where our product fit is so we go okay so actually we think that like what you need is the following like three services um, but we would deliver those in this way. And because of that, you know, and then maybe they start to sprinkle some pricing in. They go, and this bit costs 2000 but actually we're not going to do that because it would be more cost-effective if I gave you this one instead. So we're going to do this. And then, you know, and on and on it goes. That sounds like a painful email to read But it is like, it's just yeah. the way you described yeah. that just now. This is that like most painful. of the kind of B2B sales emails that you'll yeah. see, like mm. following a meeting, right? And then right at the bottom, it'll be... You know, and and I therefore attach the quote, blah blah blah, whatever. But the total cost will be seven thousand three hundred pounds per month, and it's a thirty-six month term or something, right? Yeah. And you just know that the guy who gets it is is gonna open it up, scroll, scroll to the bottom, to the bottom. Yeah, 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 and you're yeah. like, this is insane. You know, or they're gonna just like jump straight. To, they're gonna look at all that and go ah, and then and then jump straight to the attachment. And yeah. the and honestly, the the one of the standard bits of advice I would I always give the team is like, I see those emails and I like storm over there and I'm like, right open that like next time put the bottom line at the top you're like you're like hi fred really enjoyed our meeting today i've done a bunch of work with the team the solution our solution will cost you seven thousand three hundred pounds per month also like by getting the price out up front mm. it looks like you're not hiding it yeah it's that's super true. defensible yeah that's true so you're like straight off the bat you're like cool i listened to everything you've said the answer is this it makes you seem super knowledgeable very decisive it means the price isn't hidden you know and and actually like you'll get way less negotiation by putting mm. the price up front like that and then you know you can anticipate some of the questions but again those paragraphs pretty much are always reversed yeah you know and then it's yeah. mm. and that's the and that's the kind of inductive approach is you is you lead with the conclusions 
which in business is usually the best thing and then and, and people can kind of drop off anyway through the through the process you know and the other example you see there is you know well-written newspaper articles same same idea you know you kind of get everything you know they talk about bearing the lead you get everything up at the top yeah so you know you can drop out at any point of reading it you know you read the first paragraph and you walk away and you go oh i've actually got most of it you know you read the first half you've still got you've got most of it but now you have a bit more context mm. you read the whole thing you might get a little bit more you know and a little bit more background a bit more history mm. um and good news writing is, is done that way and it's the same same kind of concept yeah um and it's just a good way to respect people's time i think hey guys i just wanted to take a second to talk about our sponsor for this episode furniture box furniture box is an online furniture retailer that makes awesome products for everywhere from your bedroom to your office now we actually had monty and dan the co-founders on our show that's how we met we loved their story and we hung out with them afterwards and we knew that we wanted to work with them and here's the thing one of the biggest issues i have whenever i've ordered furniture in the past is that certain big name furniture companies not naming any names will charge you a fairly large fee for delivery and even even then that delivery usually takes a few days if not longer with furniture box not only do they offer free next day delivery but they're now planning on extending their delivery cutoff even more so that you can literally order a dining set as late as 8 p.m and be eating dinner on it the next day so to put it simply there's no one in the uk furniture scene that's doing anything like what they're doing and we're thrilled to have them as our sponsor so click the link in the show notes and check them out now back to the episode just on the b2b sales front what are you seeing as the most effective way of actually getting in front of people? Because as you mentioned there, talking on sort of cold emails and sort of sales emails, that's obviously quite an antiquated approach and one that has an extremely low hit rate. So I'm curious, obviously being a B2B, kind of how, how, do, how are you, what are you doing that makes you so successful at getting in front of clients? Well, so those, those emails are the, are the follow-up after yeah. you've had the call, the meeting, you know, the request for a quote, right? Um, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. So prior to three years ago uh we 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 never spent any money on marketing at all um okay. so um wow that's, been, that's quite impressive yeah you've been going wow. for 18 years yeah. mm. so you went 15 years with no marketing like literally nothing that's quite think, remarkable man. i think the only marketing spend we'd had was um we used to we used to send some like stuff to existing customers so uh, one of our favorite gimmicks was we used to send them uh, a Volvos umbrella on a rainy day okay um, yeah which is kind of cool yeah um, i mean that's more like that you can barely even call that marketing i mean other than yeah. that you've, you've, um, you've and we did a couple spent... we did maybe three conferences or trade shows you know which uh, I in, guess. In, in 18 years i mean <laughs> yeah. that's yeah, that's yeah, fine but, but i can still give you a clean record yeah, for that yeah. I mean, that's... certainly certainly way less than sort of 30 to fifty thousand pounds in in the first almost yeah, 15 years or so yeah yeah um so everything was uh referral and reputation wow um and and i think you know the one advantage you have is is all we had was you know we're in a we're in an industry that's really terrible at at actually serving customers so you know being being vaguely competent and um responsive and easy you know easy to reach and and, that you know and honestly like you know for for a while there i had a had a link in my email signature with a you know a lot of people don't realize you can just do a whatsapp link right like at least you know i was doing that five years ago or whatever but you know and it was literally like um i think i think it said something like send me a whatsapp i reply faster and you know with the link um you know because to the right people that really appealed to them and it's like yep i'm always available always responsive um you know same thing works with with journalists right like um you know get get asked for all sorts of stuff because you know they know that 
you know when i meet a journalist it's always like cool yeah love your stuff by the way um i'm always i'm always easy to reach um and i have opinions and i'll reply quickly um so you know when they're working on some piece at you know midnight and have a technical question about power feeds in a data center you know you're the person you're the person they reach out to because really good point. you know you reply straight away so yeah. i think like managing that expectation as well of like you know you have the sort of you back it up with performance yeah. but you also can set that expectation up front because mm. a lot of people just are, are like really hard to deal with just very simple way of, of of solving that isn't it as you say just being contactable and, th- and that yeah. drives a lot of referral business right because because we would then always follow through with the work we did was always good it was always on time it was always you know it always impressed people um and so you know it, they would they would be constantly sending referrals our way mm. so going back to the beginning when you were starting the company mm. what made you think to start an internet service provider because i mean that just feels like so infrastructure heavy that i i mean it's not like building an app or right like so build, or ordering a product i mean that's huge and i i think especially for the layman someone like me and probably a lot of people watching i would imagine that I mean, that seems like the kind of thing that would almost cost, I don't know, billions to make or hundreds of millions to make. It's because it's so big on infrastructure. So what, what made you, you know, want to go into that? Well, so, so to begin with, we, we didn't, right? So I'll give you the very brief history. Um, and by the way, there were all sorts of other things uh, which we can come back to but, but, uh, that I was looking at as, as kind of business ideas. But I'd spent from the age of, I think the first time I got paid for any software was around the age of probably 15, I think. Um, and then through university, I've been building software and some like early e-commerce websites. Um, I built an EPOS system for, for some of the bars at university. Um, so just kind of weird things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'd always spent my summers, um, so my kind of every, the one thing that was interesting at Oxford is we had these huge holidays, right? So I would go and, and like fill every holiday with work. And some of it was, you know, I used to deliver rental cars for Avis. I was a sailing instructor, so I would do, I would be sort of teaching sailing, delivering rental cars, which were like pretty kind of practical jobs where I wasn't like going to really learn a great deal that was going to be useful later in life. Um, But then I was always kind of interspersing that with often like even unpaid internships that were generally technical and and sort of software focused. So I ended up working for a voice recognition company. Uh, which would have been back in like 2004 um, in one of my breaks. Mm. Um, that was a company that later got acquired by IBM. Um, and, I, you know, that was fascinating. Learned a lot doing that. Um, and then uh, I actually got a job working for a very large law firm uh, that was building in-house, a lot of in-house software. Um, and that was kind of when I when I left university. I was doing that that summer. Yeah. And it was really that that made me realize, like, on the one hand, I'm at university. And, and the idea was that was my summer and then I was going to go back. And during that summer, they kind of kept offering me full-time jobs. And I kept saying, no, I'm going back to university. But meanwhile, I'm actually saying, saying to myself, like, I really don't want to. Like, here I'm being, I mean, I was being paid an insane day rate, um, really, um, because it was worth worth it to them. Mm. Um, and you're sort of going, well, at the university, I'm kind of being told that I'm, I'm shit. And here I'm being told that I'm worth a lot of money. A lot. Um, you know, I'm earning over a hundred pounds an hour. So I'm kind of like, where do I feel valued? Um, and so that was a massive multinational law firm. And the genesis for the business was to say, well, actually a lot of the things we're doing here, this was like, um, what you would now call like ERP and like enterprise resource planning software, like, um, 
uh, like line of business stuff. So yeah. a lot of middleware, I was basically writing software to connect systems, make them talk to each other, um, improve efficiencies, you know, save lawyers time, basically. Um, so kind of automations, things that now we think of as really obvious, you know, it's almost like the stuff that you can just do with Zapier or whatever in, yeah. in, in a few minutes was like multi-week projects back then. Mm. Um, particularly with enterprise systems and you had to have a lot of understanding of like how oracle databases worked and how PeopleSoft worked and how like you know these were these were large scale complex systems not just like you know sort of low-grade stuff that's off the shelf um so yeah the the original idea was take a lot of those skills and techniques and apply them to small and medium businesses who would um otherwise you know particularly back in 2006 never have conceived of building software in-house or yeah. having custom software built but would see quite a lot of benefit from it so the original idea for the business was software consultancy build these kind of line of business applications for small companies okay and okay. so how did that how did you then sort of transition what was the phase from that through to so this is always the fun part where i like to explain that we today. lost a lot of money doing that um so okay. so it turns out that's really hard um <laughs> uh you know i think within six months i had eight employees um and we were writing tons of code, building loads of projects. Um, but uh, actually, it becomes a sort of resource planning exercise. Mm. You know, a customer delays a project and you suddenly got eight people sat on the bench doing nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, in you, any margin you just made on the last deal, you've just lost. And actually, the fact that the software developers is irrelevant. They could be plasterers. It, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, just a, it's just a resource matrix problem. Um, but what was interesting was we were we were very early on the kind of you know SaaS wasn't really a thing back then software as a service you know the idea of salesforce running in a web browser that was just coming okay. coming to so this idea we started building our software to run in a browser and then what that meant was servers didn't have to be in the customer's office anymore mm. uh, it sounds insane but like that literally was where we were in 2006 2007. wow so we we literally bought two servers um and figured out how to put them in a data center um, because cloud was not a thing. Um, and we started basically taking the software we we're building for customers and also offering to run it for them so they didn't have the hassle of the internal IT burden. Um, and then we get to sort of fast forward to 2009, financial crisis. No one's paying now to do the CapEx on software projects. So that business is like dying hard. Meanwhile, more than half of our profit is actually coming from this little hosting business we have where we're just running the applications that we've built. Yeah. So uh, so I made the decision that we were no longer going to build software for our customers. We would still do it for ourselves, Yeah. but not for our customers. Um, and from there, through 2009 through sort of, 2000, uh, sort of 2017, thereabouts, we just grew that business. So I think Amazon didn't open their first UK data center until... I think it was 2017 okay really late yeah yeah. and in the meanwhile if you remember sort of uh, you know london silicon roundabout and and the kind of real thrust towards like mm. london fintechs and tech startups yeah huge around 2017 and they're all looking across the ponds at, at sort of you know reading hacker news and seeing what's yeah. coming out of the us and where you know you're getting now these like aws native businesses and cloud native businesses and there's no infrastructure here for it so we did really well for a period of time there uh, providing that kind of infrastructure as essentially private cloud infrastructure and yeah. we would built the knowledge up of like operating inside data centers running the networks doing all those kind of things with e-commerce customers and pension providers and you know all sorts of stuff 
Um, so we kind of got into the infrastructure end of like, you have to do it and it has to be super, super reliable. Right. You know, we ran the online store for what is now, I think one of the UK's largest fashion brands in their early okay. days. Can you say who? Uh, I probably shouldn't, um, but but they're, they're very well known. But the, you know, that was in the first three years of their operation. And it was, you know, if you had a 30 second outage on a Thursday night. Yeah. Um, it was fast fashion, right? Like mm. you, that was peak for them. Mm. Um, you were you were not only going to lose the contract, but you were going to wind up in court very quickly. No idea. Okay. Um, so you know, we got very good at building reliable networks and reliable systems, and and also working with customers to make sure their own systems are reliable. Yeah. How did you acquire your first customer? Uh, God, that's a really good question. I, I think the first few customers were acquired through some extremely painful, cringeworthy networking events that I <laughs> oh, don't, I don't yeah, wish okay. to recount. Because yeah, yeah, it was yeah. hard right back in like 2006. Um, you know, you didn't have, like LinkedIn wasn't, I'm trying to think, like, were we on LinkedIn? Probably just about, okay. maybe. In fact, I don't think, no, I don't think so. I think like, I feel like LinkedIn was like- 20, I don't think LinkedIn was really a thing 2010. in 2006. No. Not 2006. So no, you no. just didn't have like a lot of the tools that we have yeah. now, right? And I think, um, you know, smartphones didn't exist, right? Let's just remind everybody. Um, you know, the first few like bits of equipment we bought and ordered and financed, we did. We had to transact by fax. Um, you know, I remember that <laughs> vividly. Crazy. You know, I kitted out my office with with Dell computers and flat screens for yeah, my yeah. team, and we yeah. we had to do it by fax. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all the payments we received all the way up to sort of 2009 were by check. Like okay. nobody was doing bank transfers. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think it was a very different time. So it was literally yeah. going to these kind of small local networking events and tediously speaking to absolutely everybody yeah, yeah, yeah. and then having to follow it up with just a traditional phone call. That's the game. So, so for example, if someone was starting a business tomorrow and they might not have heard of, of, heard of your company and then they're thinking about what they want to do for services, what would make them go for you over, you know, Virgin or someone like that? Well, I think that's... Because they have brand equity, right? Yeah, like like where we, where the difference comes in is is it's it's our customers as a starting point will always have some sort of commercial office space, right? So so we we are connecting commercial premises, office buildings, um, and so your starting point is the company's kind of of a size where inherently already of a size where they're leasing some office space. Um, you know where you get sort of co-working spaces like a WeWork or something like that, and that's a big customer of ours. Um, we then we're doing a deal with the co-working provider because you go into those right. spaces you you know you're not expecting to have your own utilities contracts your own your own um isp or yeah. whatever right you're expecting it to be included so you're kind of up to businesses of a certain scale like typically that that's going to mean more than sort of 10 people or i yeah. don't know five ten million revenue that kind of thing um and so there's usually a little bit of experience of like oh, okay we, we need to do these things and so, so the first then the first issue they encounter is they go and sign a lease and then they go into this space that's usually been, you know, it's completely bare. Yeah. And they have to get a fit out done. And then they have to start thinking like, oh, shit, we're going to need some connectivity. And then this is the interesting part. They kind of go, I don't know how to do that. You know, if it's their first time, mm -hmm. you realize that you probably don't really know any business ISPs. You can, yeah, sure, you know, for example, Virgin. And yes, Virgin Media do have a business division. Um but it all suddenly gets really opaque and confusing and particularly Virgin Media Business mm. do not have anywhere near the network coverage we have in London. So 
you know the very quickly the conversation you have with them if that is your go-to is is they want to know the address the coverage then they start to send you a quote but then you know they suddenly it feels very very salesy and like they haven't actually yet mm. committed you know you've noticed wandering around your empty empty office space that there isn't like ostensibly any virgin media cabling around so you're kind of wondering how is this actually going to happen um and so you know then you ask around probably um you ask another tenant in the building yeah, do they yeah. use you ask the landlord maybe if you have if you spoke to them you probably ask the the retail agent that actually showed you the property uh, or you ask the fit out company any mm. of those people and that's where our referrals are, are driven from mm, really. um so so that's where most of it comes from is you're talking about people who are already having to kind of go down a bit of a rabbit hole yeah, of, yeah. of like kind of office leasing and stuff yeah if you weren't in that world you wouldn't necessarily know about it but it? that's yeah. a minority of the market anyway yeah. that's you t- you know, you're talking about people who are sort of like leasing their first office space and in reality we probably miss a few of those or they have a misstep and they they get a sort of almost domestic grade service missold to them have a major outage then ask for someone for advice and go hey what what should we do yeah. or you know they're speaking to their IT company or whatever so actually there's a kind of community of people that you would say are sort of like in the know mm. you know and it will be sort of more technical people mm. in much the same way if you're looking to buy a bit of kit you would ask someone you know who you know to be knowledgeable yeah. about yeah, it yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and so we it's you know big focus is that is making sure those people know mm. I'm really curious to know uh, as someone who's so technically uh, proficient what your opinion is on uh, the move of AI I know it's like the hot barn question yeah but I would I we ask a lot of our guests about That's it pretty good we did you know, know 50 minutes or something. <laughs> we did um, but I just I, I didn't want to wrap up without touching on that um yeah I it's fascinating. I mean, machine learning and AI has been around for a very, very long time. You know, I, I had a, uh, I, I worked on a machine learning project at university um, around robot soccer, right? Like it was kind of an okay. interesting, interesting thing. Um, it was all pretty terrible, but like we've had all sorts of applications for that. Um, I think with all this stuff, the intersection is like almost back where we where we started the discussion around. Um, wanting to learn things because we can see a, an application or a use and and every now and again technologies come along where we don't you know we sort of have the answer before we have the question mm. or whatever you know we don't we don't actually know what the use is but we can see it sort of envisage that it might be really useful. you know lasers were the classic example of this where you know so much of, of what we do today works because of lasers but when they were invented that was not you know that was not foreseen so I think with AI, we're in this sort of weird state where we've had a bit of a jump in capability. We've kind of invented the laser, right? Like we've, we've now suddenly seen a bit of a leap in, in capability of these systems. I don't think that it's sort of, you know, I don't quite buy into the um, the singularity stuff. You know, we're, we're a ways off from that. I think, I think a more sort of calm, rational thing to say is like we've seen a sudden leap in capability. Mm. You know, it's a, call it a 10x leap, but it's not, like a thousand x right it's like it's like a 10x improvement in in what we would what yeah. we were capable of before and now people are kind of rapidly sort of back propagating other problems that they can solve um and we do see this sort of stuff happening a lot you know solar panels suddenly get you know four times you know four or ten times better output at you know half the cost and now all sorts all sorts of problems that you would never bolted a solar panel to mm. you know suddenly it works and i think it's it's kind of the same we see that again and again and again with technology is it sort of tends towards abundance mm. loads of applications start to pop up that we hadn't maybe previously thought of mm. so i think that's i don't know i have a pretty like you're optimistic yeah of course because i think um 
I think you can immediately see so many of these things, whether it's talking about, as I have done, the you know the the sort of difficulty in getting well written um, text out of people uh, now. Like actually, I think these are applications where you can envisage that AI could do a really really yeah. good job of explaining. I'm, I'm really optimistic about some of the stuff that's been written about how AI can influence learning, and you know a lot of the concepts we use in teaching and in schools it's the sort of um you know it's 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 distilled down to the average of you know teach it the average way that the average student learns and then the role of the teacher is to try as much as possible to customize it to each student's learning patterns but actually you know this is with ai we could you know we could really enhance these systems so that you know you could you could envisage a situation where you have a sort of an ai counterpart that understands how you learn and can transcribe concepts for you Mm. um and so i think there's so much you know, there are some some really cool things that you could do. Were you gonna say, I was going to say something. What do you reckon the timeline is that we're looking at for AI to potentially replace jobs such as auditors, lawyers, accountants, that sort of thing? I'm curious. Uh, there are some big problems, right? Like, you know, the, the, the kind of hallucination stuff is, is clearly a pretty big issue. Um, hallucination think, stuff? So the AI basically just making stuff up. You know, because because at the moment, you know, what we're seeing with things like ChatGPT and, and the sort of generative AI is is um, it's not engaging in the same fundamental thought process. There isn't a thought process per se. It's 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 actually just just based around a load of stuff it's seen, and so it's able to hallucinate. Um, so you know, there's loads of examples of this. Where I think recently there was one in the news of a, of a lawyer who actually used a, used an AI, and it just it just made up some case law. Wow. Uh, totally you know it's like it's 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 a hallucination it's a dream mm. um it sounds incredibly plausible because it's based around having seen lots of things that are real and therefore it's able to hallucinate something that also seems as though it would be real mm. so you can kind of imagine that by taking you know very crudely this is not how the ai really works but very crudely if, if you show it a thousand examples of something you know taking a little bit of each of those examples and then piecing them back together again it sort of looks like a whole plausible you know case mm. but actually it completely wasn't yeah um so until you have you know you, you've tuned that out i was listening to a um uh there's a uh speech recognition ai um company that's, that's come out of cambridge university and i was listening to the guy um at an event recently um and he said it was one of the funny things the hallucinations they had on their ai was was at the end of every transcript that they were playing it they trained the system it was very good it was very accurate but they kept finding at the end of a transcript it would it would uh, it would add the words uh, hit that like and subscribe <laughs> <laughs> with that <laughs> because clearly what they a lot of the training material must have come from YouTube and YouTube transcripts. And so it had always associated the kind of intonation that comes at the yeah, end yeah. of, or we don't know exactly, but probably the way we speak as we sign off and the kind of language. You know, if you look at the last 10 seconds of, of how people sign off YouTube videos, it's probably very, very similar in terms of language, intonation, etc. Mm, yeah. And then they always say that at the end. And so, you know it just kind of thought this was how you Human sign speak. off a piece of text interesting slash scary but interesting um no, yeah okay just before we get to the last question which is how we end all episodes there's mm. one more thing that i was curious to ask you um do you believe that entrepreneurs are born or made because i feel like when you look at someone like um i don't know elon musk or zuck um, and to be fair, you I'm just calling them Zuck now. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're on that basis. Uh, uh, also, did you hear about the cage? Yeah, match? I guess I say there's only going to be one of them soon, right? So yeah. <laughs> Who's your money on, Zuck or Elon? 
Oh, I just think I think Elon's got it, hasn't he? It's got to be. I'll Elon. be really sad if Zuck wins. I thought I thought Elon because he's plus Andrew Tate has now officially uh, said he's going to train Elon on Twitter. I as saw well. that. It's not at all problematic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, all. but apparently no. uh, Zuck's been doing uh, jujitsu. Yeah. Has he? For, he's like, been doing a lot of years. MMA. Yeah. So uh, I'm like, okay. I, I, I would rather horse. Elon, okay. but I feel no, like on, Zuck on, might come out with a cheeky really? rear naked choke. On on paper, like Zuck wins, but that's just too depressing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Agree with that. To my point, I feel like when you look at someone like Elon or someone like Zuck you know they're clearly just next level in terms of their capabilities intellectually and I think to be fair to it to some extent you're kind of the same and you know and you were also very resourceful from an early age you clearly showed signs of entrepreneurialism from a young age you know you always had side hustles and jobs and and even while you're at Oxford where most people would kind of I don't know but I would assume at least coast to some extent because they're like well I'm at Oxford I'll be okay you were still going back and you know doing sailing you know instructing and then renting cars and this kind of stuff and then you were tinkering with you know software companies and this and that you were clearly very resourceful and very entrepreneurial and I feel like you kind of fall in that same category as someone who doesn't know you a bit like the kind of Elon Zuck type personality where it's like they were clearly just meant to be someone like that so do you think that's the kind of thing where anyone can just be an entrepreneur or do you think you kind of have to have something I, I think I mean I've met lots of entrepreneurs who are successful and quite different to me as well so I think I think you know I maybe fit a particular archetype um, can we address that archetype because I, I do agree yeah. with you and I think we would probably all agree with that but I'm talking more about the highly technical highly intellectual sector of entrepreneurialism I mean fundamentally I, I don't know I think like I think it sort of snowballs I think there's a there's a seed kind of interest and you kind of you go out you 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 kind of scratch away at something you figure out how to solve a problem that's really gratifying you start to seek that out again and again and again then you start to challenge systems or push things or ask questions and you realize that like holy shit I was I was right the system was broken mm. and actually there is a better way or you know and and so you for, there are tons of things that didn't work out right like tons and tons of things I did that didn't work out and there's I've always I've had a kind of stubborn kind of willingness to just go and try the next thing go and try the next thing but but I think there are also lots of things in there that I probably take for granted which were reinforcement learning around you know challenging something and then actually being proven right and then going okay I should I should keep plugging away at it but I I, I guess it's you know there are you know the thing that always fascinates me is you know talented musicians talented artists it's like that for me i can i can just sit and lose so much time watching a talented artist mm. because it's something that's so alien to me mm. their ability to create from nothing or to paint something they see or mm. to to make music um it's you know the how much of that is a natural aptitude uh, mm. probably quite a lot um but equally, there has to have been some early reinforcement. I think it's like you know mm. maybe we're, maybe some of us have been quite lucky that we've maybe sort of found out what right those way. things are mm. quite early and then been able to hone them. Do you meditate? Because um, you seem very zen. I was thinking that the whole interview. <laughs> Not in a traditional way. Um, I'm 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 like a, a sort of hardcore introvert. So um, you know, or I, probably like a high functioning introvert. So quite good at sort of public speaking i'm quite good at presenting or whatever but i didn't used to be um that's very much a learned a learned skill but i spend a lot of time sort of in my own head you know just i like to think mm -hmm. about things so if i get honestly one of the nicest things i get is like a four or five hours alone at home i had to drive to um drive to france recently a sort of eight hour drive on my own 
um a few of my team were kind of shocked when they were like oh what do you listen to and i was like literally nothing no music no podcast Tell them your thoughts the first six hours was complete silence and it was absolutely brilliant because i just you know i have this like whole backlog of things i just want to think about yeah of course Dude, this this has been a really really interesting conversation. It really has. So yeah. I I feel like I could sit here for like three hours because I've got so many questions. <laughs> There's so many more but, questions um, I want to ask you, but I know yeah. I know we're we'll have to do a, a part two at some point. Um, but just to sign off, man, we we ask everyone the same question at the end of every episode. Um, obviously we're focused on the practical and the tangible. Yeah. So if there was one piece of advice that you could give to someone who either already runs their own business or is looking to start one, if you could give them one piece of advice focused on the actionable, so less you know try things work hard and believe in yourself and more something practical what would that be yeah no i mean there's two answers to that and you've asked for one but um <laughs> you can get to i think it's i think i think it's probably if you want the practical advice it's follow the money um uh, we, we sort of started by chatting about that it's um that's served me very very well and and i don't mean that in the the kind of throwaway way i mean it in the get someone to pay you for it you got an idea cool get someone to actually pay till there's an invoice and someone's paid it like i don't believe it's a business and i think that's, that's very very good yeah, and that advice. still applies for us now right like we're you know we're we're launching into some new areas at work in terms of how we work with other infrastructure companies for example and how we can support them yeah so it's a very different model but it's like cool we have this amazing asset it's a little bit like amazon you know, built all their data centers out to run their own business. And then they went, well, maybe we should sort of provide that service to others. My argument to the team is like, before you go away and build teams around it and a load of process and a load of other stuff, build a slide deck, do the bare minimum, go out, pitch it, get a competitor to pay us. We will very quickly backfill how on earth we then deliver on that the first time. Mm. But like, prove to me that someone will actually pay us to do that. And then, then we've got a business. That seems strangely relevant. It does. It does. I know. It does. Uh, Tim, this has been such an awesome conversation, man. Um, the floor is yours. Uh, straight in the camera. Where can people find you? Uh, LinkedIn's always a good one. Um, and I do reply, reply quickly on, on WhatsApp as well. Um, but if you shoot me an email, uh, which is uh, tc at fourboss.com, uh, then uh, you'll have my details. Perfect. Amazing. Thank you so much. Tim Kresswick, thank you so much, man. Um, guys, just like an AI script, buddy, I'm going to tell you to like and subscribe. Uh, make sure. <laughs> yeah. Can't do it. Do hit the subscribe button. We've got some amazing conversations coming. And if you are on audio platforms, then please do rate us five stars and leave a review because it does help us in the good old algo. Um, but for now, Tim, honestly, man, this was one of my favorites. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for coming cool. on. Thank you. Really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, guys. Take care.